This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that we've been up to this morning, including looking at the repercussions for not hitting your amortization targets. The new year was the deadline. Uh, some companies did not make it. And we are hearing that fines are already being issued. What do companies do next? Gordon Barr is the lawyer we turn to for advice this morning. He's a partner at the Employment and Incentives Practice at Al Tamimi and Company. We've also been taking listener requests this morning. We know that a lot of you and a lot of us are a bit fascinated by how Noon manages to get groceries and other goods to you within 15 minutes. Some of us may have been playing with that challenge, trying to see if we could beat it. Fascinating interview, if we do say so ourselves, with Ali Kafil Hussain, who is the Chief of Staff at Noon, to find out whether or not they've just built secret grocery shops at the end of everybody's road. We've also been having a look at Ronaldo's grand arrival in Saudi Arabia and had a look at where, if like Ronaldo, you're earning $400-odd a minute, you should be putting your money in 2023 with the CEO of Finemays. Cristiano Ronaldo was dotting the I's and crossing the dollar signs yesterday on his official deal with Al Nasser Football Club in Saudi Arabia. But it's a deal that goes further than that, not just uh, a contract with a club, a contract with a football federation and a country as a whole. Why Saudi Arabia? A lot of people asking. Well, Cristiano had an answer for those at the official press conference yesterday. I can say now I had many opportunities in Europe, many clubs in, in, um, in Brazil, uh, in Australia, US, even in Portugal, many clubs tried to, to sign me, but I give the word to this club for the opportunity to de- develop uh, not only the football, but the other part of this amazing country. And for me, it's a good challenge. I know what I want. And I know, of course, what I don't want as well. So for me, it's a good chance to change, to help with my knowledge and my experience. Richard Dean, do we believe him? Um, well, uh, yes. I mean, I would never accuse him of lying. So if he says he had other interests from European clubs, I'm sure that is true. Whether he had a firm offer on a big salary from a Champions League club is, is not the issue. Um, you know, maybe Oldham Athletic... You know, offered him a player coach role or something like that. Uh, I, I, there would have been interest. Marketing departments would have been interested. Uh, probably head coaches a little bit less so at elite European clubs. Now, it's simply because of, uh, of his age. However well he's looked after his body, he is approaching 40 years old now. And for an elite athlete in that sport, it can be, it can be challenging. What about you? So, I... Again, there will be the critics out there, my son included, who say, yeah, no, we've heard it all before. Yeah, we had all that you know, stuff about wanting to go out at the top of his game, wanting to play Champions League football uh, in his final seasons, etc. Um, but it's all come down to the money. The more I find out about the deal, the more and the more I hear about it, the more I think that there are a number of options and good reasons for it. Not so much for... Cristiano Ronaldo, but I think it's an amazing deal for Saudi Arabia. And there was one point that Mark Archer, the 
uh, sports uh, uh, business consultant joined, who joined us a little earlier made it made that that sort of struck a chord with me, which was the health factor. Cristiano Ronaldo is regarded as one of the fittest players that the game has ever seen. Uh, his attention to detail, his attention to training, his respect of his body is something that you know, has sort of rewritten the rules of what footballers need to do in order to maintain standards. Saudi Arabia has a very young population, uh, under 50, over 50% under the age of 25. Saudi Arabia also has um, an obesity and diabetes problem because of lack of mobility uh, amongst the younger generations. That's something that we've seen here in recent years and addressed very, very well here with this promotion to move through sport, uh, fitness challenges, other initiatives, cycling tracks, blah, 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 the investment into sporting infrastructures. It's clever from Saudi Arabia. You get somebody that with one of the best six packs ever known to mankind, a man who lives and breathes fitness. You bring him in as a sort of icon and ambassador of not just football, but sport in your, in your country, and it will inspire younger generations. It will. Yeah, there's a grassroots element to this as well as a high-profile sports marketing Not just from this. football, though, but from health and wellness. I think there's a, there's a play here from the Ministry of Health in Saudi Arabia that could be very beneficial to them. Yeah, I don't think we'll be able to judge the return on this investment from Saudi Arabia socially, culturally, financially, sportingly for probably a decade. Um, but what we will be able to judge is whether... One of the reasons that they've signed him up is to bring big tournaments in. And I wonder how long we wait to see until, you know, we saw this with David Beckham driving a number of um, uh, uh, bids, nominations and bids for the UK for major tournaments. Uh, Saudi Arabia have sort of put their faith into Cristiano Ronaldo. Is he going to bring big tournaments? What are you expecting the football version of Live Golf? Well, I think... I mean, like we were saying yesterday, I think he will, he will, his move will help to attract big players. But I think also one of the reasons that he's been signed to Saudi Arabia, um, uh, Saudi Football Federation and the Saudi government therein is to bring big tournaments, to front the bid for the World Cup, for, the, for other major tournaments, as Arch was mentioning. Ah, they're not going to get it for decades. No. The World Cup is informally on a rotational basis, isn't it? Europe gets it. America's get it, Asia gets it, Africa's had it, Asia's just had it. It's not Asia's turn. We've got the Americas next year, or in four years' time. Then Far East may want it. We haven't had the first one in Africa yet, and look at how well their teams did in the World We had Cup South Africa. We had South Africa. Yeah, so yeah. there's a, there's a lot right. of people ahead of Saudi Arabia or the UAE in the queue, I would argue. Apologies to all the South Africans out there. We'll be absolutely spitting now. You're right. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We are looking at the UAE's amortization targets and the carrot and stick approach that has been taken uh, for companies to comply. We're hearing about the sticks this morning. Um, businesses telling us that they are receiving their first fines and penalties for missing those New Year targets. Very pleased to be joined by Gordon Barr, partner in the Employment and Incentives Practice at the law firm Al-Tamimi & Co. Gordon, thank you for joining us. Happy New Year. 
Yeah, morning, Brandy. How are you? I am well. Before we get into what some companies are now looking to clear up at the beginning of a new year um, and put in place, tell us what they needed to do by the end of last year. Yeah, so so look, amortisation isn't new. It's been around for years, but the, the big change is around enforcement, as you just talked about on the show this morning. I mean, the uh, in the middle of last year, in June, the, the Ministry of Human Resources and Amortisation, um, there was a, a resolution issued which uh, set out enforcement requirements. So in the past, yes, there have been quotas, uh, notably around banking and insurance, but a lack of enforcement. Now there's enforcement, um, a requirement um, where a company has 50 or more skilled employees, they must hire at least 2% of the workforce as UAE national. So if you had 50 skilled employees, you'd have to hire one UAE national. And that increases uh, incrementally by 2% each year till 2026, up to a total of 10% with sanctions for non-compliance. So to use my example, if you had 50 employees and you're supposed to hire a, one UA national and you didn't, then the sanction would be 6,000 dirhams per month, so 72,000 per annum for the first year, 2022. Um, and that's where you're hearing uh, companies that have had fines of that amount levied against them. And if the fines are not paid, then there can be a block on the company's establishment card, which means that it can't um, obtain new visas, process renewals, and process cancellations of visas until such time as, as the fines are being paid. So that's the that's the upshot of it in terms of summary. You mentioned the the, the stick, and that's what the stick looks like. Well, it's the 4th of January. Uh, the authorities don't seem to be messing around. Does that surprise you? It, it, I, I, I think it does. It, it, it surprises the private sector as a whole. I think what's where there's been misgivings um, from some of our client base um, is in two main areas, not just the speed at which the fines are being issued, because the resolution does provide for that. So um, that's perfectly within the remit of um, the authorities to take those steps. Um, I think where... Um, there are misgivings in the private sector is that prior UA nationals are not included in the quota. So to use my earlier example, if you'd hired a UA, if you had 50 skilled employees and you'd hired a UA national in, let's say, 2018, so you have one UA national, the expectations are under the, 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 the new enforcement legislation that you hire new UA nationals. So there wouldn't be a reward for, let's say, being a good corporate citizen and having hired um, UA nationals historically, this is a forward-facing piece of legislation. It's what you do now. So the company that did nothing and, and never hired a UA national historically would be in the same position as a company who had been a co good corporate citizen and had um, had looked to engage with localization efforts and, and, and had hired UA nationals. So that's one area. And then the second area I think where there are misgivings is that the resolution came into effect in June of last year whereas the retrospective fines apply for 2022. So they're effectively applying for the period prior to when the resolution came into effect. So I think that's where um, the private sector is uh, is reeling somewhat from, from the steps that have been taken. Are you getting phone calls from people who have received fines first couple of days of the year? Is your phone ringing your email inboxes full? Yeah, that's fair to say. Yes, um, it's been it's been busy with with um, with that, and uh, I think you've experienced the same with some of your listeners who have 
um, talked about the two issues that we, we've mentioned, which is the, the fines and the block on the establishment cards, which, uh, I mean, the block on the establishment cards, effectively, until such time as it clears, it operationally stops the company really processing, doing business and so on. So it is it is um, an issue that needs to be resolved. And look, all of what we've discussed there is the, is, is the stick. I mean, on the carrot side, um, you know, the, the, the NAFIS program, which is operated separately, and I think that's where sometimes there's a, a misunderstanding in the private sector. What we've talked about thus far is the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratisation and its uh, its approach. Whereas on the NAFIS side, which is operated by the Emirati um, Talent Competitiveness Council, ETCC, they are looking at more of the, the carrot, they've engaged with the private sector, there's a whole number of initiatives that have been rolled out with good effect. Um, and uh, uh, the unofficial figures are that those efforts have resulted in some 13,000 UA nationals in December alone coming across to the, the, the private sector. Um, and I think that um, you, you can see the advantages of that carrot approach and, and there was there's a couple you know Abu Dhabi ports have uh, committed with NAFIS to seven and a half thousand employees UA national employees um, by 2026 uh, Etisalat similarly so the private sector are engaging with that type of approach I think it's uh, it's 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 trying to get that balance right is the issue. Well, the reason we're calling you up, Gordon, is for a bit of legal advice this morning. Um, for those who haven't hit their quotas, what are their options now? Can they hire quickly and make the fines go away? So the fines are applicable for the year past. So the fines are payable. Um, there is a, a grievance committee um, where appeals can be submitted within 30 days of the fines being levied. Um, it's our Ministry of Human Resources Emiratisation Grievance Committee. Um, as long as a grievance appeal is filed within 30 days of the, the, the fine being uh, or the sanction being imposed, um, you'll then get a decision within 15 days. But short of any overturn by that committee, the fines will be applicable um, because they're backward looking fines. Um, and all the company can do going forward is A, pay the fine and B, engage with the uh, with the localization program and look to engage with UA nationals and hire them for the, the year coming. Yeah, and I was going to to say, so how do you do, and we've got one minute with you, the, the maths cumulatively and what kind of time frame do you have? Is it the full year to stay on the right side of the law for the next lot of quotas? Yeah, if you dipped, you, you, if, if let's say you had resignations and you dipped, you'd be able to dip in the year for a two-month period only. Um, so you would have a two-month uh, periods to rectify a situation, bring you up, back up to your, your quota level. Um, and look, um, my experience of dealing with multinationals is that they are very much willing to engage with both the UA government and the education sector uh, because it's it's where you're going to get UA nationals that are engaged in the private sector is through uh, university graduates primarily through the education sector. So I think that the NAFIS programme and its efforts to try and engage with the, the private sector is the way forward. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure that the more attritional approach that we've seen and um, has uh, given rise to me coming on your show today is necessarily the best way forward. Um, and uh, I, But I, I think that there are positives there in terms of um, the approach taken by NAFIS and hopefully we see um, the authorities building upon that and engaging with the private sector in the way um, you know, in a, in, a, in a positive way. 
Good and bar from El Tamimi. Thank you very much this morning. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. All right, we continue our CEO focus this week, talking investments now with the CEO of Finamaze. It's an artificial intelligence-powered investment firm based out of Abu Dhabi, Medifik Tali. Welcome to the Business Breakfast studio. Thank you very much. Happy to be here and Happy New Year. We're going to look at some of your predictions for 2023 and where to invest in 2023. But first of all, let's look back at the Annus Horribilis that was 2022. Most international markets sharply lower last year. S&P 500 down about 20 odd percent. Rising interest rates, a dollar strength, the dollar basket up about 8% last year. How would you characterize 2022? It was indeed a special year because not only the stock markets were hit, and as you have correctly said, S&P lost a fifth of its value, Nasdaq a third of its value, but also the fixed income space suffered minus 15% on average. And this is quite unique. So there was no way to hide in 2022. Both stocks and fixed income were hurt. And any, I would say, passive diversification that would tend to invest some of the, the, the assets in stocks and some of the others in fixed income got really, really, really bad, minus 17, minus 18% on average. Okay, that was last year. So people have lost money. The Indian market did okay. I think it was up about 3%, but that was a very rare, bright spot. Does that mean it's now a buying opportunity in the stock market? Unfortunately, not yet. Or, or I would say it would be differentiated. So why not uh, yet? Because... As you have correctly said, the Fed jumped up, hiked the rate from 0.25 to 4.5%. It will probably continue until 5, 5.5, perhaps 6% this year. This higher interest rate hit the market at two levels. First, people can simply deposit cash and get some decent earnings uh, out of it, 5%, 6% potentially by Q1, which means that it will, the liquidity will dry up from the stock markets. The Fed as well will be reducing its balance sheet, which means as well that it will take in up a lot of liquidity from the markets. And third effect is that the corporate earnings will be hit because of the higher cost of borrowing, the higher cost of debt. All these elements will combine and very likely we will not have a beautiful year when it, when it comes to stock market in, uh, in the US and in Europe. Does it mean that there is no opportunity? Well, it depends if you know where to look at. Very likely sectors that are more resilient to inflation, sectors that are more resilient, I would say, to slow down in economics. Here I'm talking about consumer staples, healthcare, potentially aeronautics and defensive sectors will very likely do much better than other sectors such as discretionary consumer sectors or, for example, technology, which will suffer. And we don't see a strong recovery of the Nasdaq in 2023. That's on the U.S. stocks. Now, if you look at more generally at the global level, there will be also some differentiations. Some emerging markets actually started their rate hikes much earlier than the U.S. And we can see some nice opportunities, may it be in Latin America, may it be indeed in Asia. You mentioned India. We're seeing a lot of transfer of production from China to India, some other countries such as Indonesia. Yes, so there are some, some pockets but one has to be able to look uh, to look out for them. And you say this year could be a year where it's worth paying a bit more for an active fund manager who's going to stop pick and b- build a portfolio for you, but charge you a fee for that, rather than just uh, a passive approach such as buying an S and P five hundred 
tracker. Why should we be paying the higher fees this year for those active fund managers? Uh, indeed, when uh, the tide uh, is is rising, all I would say all the boats go up. And this was the case between, let's say, broadly the past 10 years, between 2011 and 2021, whereby the very few fund managers managed to beat the, the, the S&P. This year, as you correctly said, it will be different. And the reason is well, simply because self-medication works sometimes, but not all the times. And this is definitely a year which will, dis- which will be special. And referring to specialists of the field, specifically those who are following the market, the market trends, who, who, are, who are having a deeper reading and perhaps have the expertise and the time to spend in order to manage your wealth correctly, those are definitely uh, a, a trend that we will see firming up in 2023 and definitely it is worth paying the fees for them. So your organization, Finamaze, uses artificial intelligence, if I was a client of yours, to structure my portfolio, which is fine. But I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile and I like the fact that you're ex-Morgan Stanley, ex-Barclays, ex-Credit Agricole. I like the fact that you're a human and you've got experience. How do we balance those two? Yeah, uh, this is really true. So we are following what we can call a hybrid solution, whereby we leave the human beings do what they are best at, which is which is basically and uh, cherry picking the different assets that we put in the, in the portfolio. But at the same time, will it the AI, will it the algorithms do the heavy lifting of computation, do the heavy lifting of personalization, doing the heavy lifting of execution, because. Computers and algorithms don't sleep. They are always aware and they are the ones who help the humans by saying, hey, there, there is a dislocation in this market. Be careful, you should do something about it. So it's basically the the clever work between humans and the machine. Each one of these of the humans and the machine will will basically bring in what they are what they know best in order indeed to make the asset management more personalized and potentially bring in more value to the end investor. Mehdi, we've got one minute left, 30 seconds on commodities and 30 seconds on cryptocurrencies this year. Well, I don't think that 2023 is the year of the cryptocurrencies. Uh, they will. The market will take some time in order to digest the different crypto uh, giant failures. This doesn't mean that this asset uh, class will completely disappear, but probably it will go into a winter. Commodities back uh, on, on a weaker dollar, which we, which is our year for 2023, but also on the opening of China and potentially having more demand. We are more positive on, on the commodity, particularly oil, which will benefit the region. And the dynamism of the GCC markets and GCC IPOs is one of proof of that. We are sitting here in this region in a very strong market. Fundamentals. Mehdi, good talk to you. Appreciate your time this morning. The voice of Mehdi Fiktali, CEO of Finamaze, licensed in Abu Dhabi Global Market. Thanks for your time. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Well, we're not a music station. None of us are cool enough uh, to be music DJs. But we are about to do an interview by popular request. Because it's not often that we go around having conversations about delivery apps. But people are having actual conversations about the noon 15-minute promise. We've got mates who are testing it, turning the kettle on, seeing if they can get some Ferrero Rocher. Other chocolate is available by the time they've made a cup of tea. And we want to know how it works. Very pleased to be joined now by Ali Kafil Hussain, who leads Noon Minutes uh, and is also Noon's Chief of Staff. Ali, good morning. Thanks for joining us. 
Good morning. So you're the one who's uh, ordering all the Ferrero Rocher. And eating all the Ferrero Rocher, but we're just not going to talk about that. Your 15-minute promise. What made yeah. you think in the first place that that was even going to be feasible? Um, so we fundamentally believe it's the future. Um, when we look uh, at how grocery was traditionally done, it was more about, you know, planning the weekly shop. Uh, and we still think there's there's a place for that. But, you know, as time has evolved, customer needs have become a bit more immediate. And uh, yeah, we've made it possible. What we do is we have these, uh, what we call them micro fulfillment centers or dark stores, um, which are basically small shops that don't have a shop front. You can't go in and buy stuff. Um, and they're purely made for um, efficient and quick delivery. So um, yeah, we started launching these stores. We tested it for quite a while and really tested whether this 15 minutes is possible. Um, and sure enough, it was. And now we've we've started expanding. We've expanded considerably across the UAE. And uh, yeah, it's going pretty well. Okay, so how many of these have you got? Because one of the questions I've got this morning, someone's literally asked, have they built a secret supermarket at the end of my road? The answer is most likely yes. Um, or if we're not there, we're probably coming soon. Um, we've got about between 20 and 30 now. Um, and, you know, we only started this about six months ago. And for like three of those months, we were really operating in stealth mode. So we're expanding quite quickly. Um, and yeah, you, you typically won't know where these these stores are. So uh, they may well be, um, you know, under your building or, you know, next door, um, which helps us do the delivery very quickly. So our main goal is get as close to the customer as possible um, and then uh, that helps us deliver very quickly. So what's the catchment area? What kind of maths have you done to figure out how far one of these dark stores needs to, to be in order to make that 15 minutes? So it varies because of like traffic in different areas. As you know, places like Marina traffic wise can be, be a nightmare. Um, so we calculate it based on the, the driving time. Typically that distance is uh, about a two kilometer radius. Um, we try not to go above that purely for a few reasons. One, we want our drivers to know the ex the exact area very well, and that helps them deliver deliver in the right time. Um, so, for example, you know, down here in uh, I'm in downtown Dubai at the moment. Uh, our drivers are literally in this area. They're better than Google Maps. They know how to get to every building, um, and it's those small small polygons that enable us to do that. But how do you cope with complicated orders? People who maybe, for example, not saying it's happening, deliberately putting in complicated large orders um, that they think you can't even make it around and, and put those goods in a basket in 15 minutes. Uh, we've done a lot of work behind the scenes on optimising um, what we call the picking path in the store. So... Things are typically in the order where, so basically on the app, our pickers get um, get the list of items in the order that's optimized in the store. So there's a route that they follow, which is the most efficient in the store. So even if they do, let's say 20 items, um, the route doesn't change that they go through. So it's not as if they're scrambling around the store, that doesn't exist. So, um, and obviously we're also constrained by the physical volume in the bike. So, uh, 
yeah, we tend to still make it, even if it's a large order, we tend to still make it within the promised uh, estimated time. I've got a question actually about the bikes. Someone has asked, are they using Japanese super bikes to do this? I wish, um, but I, I wish uh, we had Japanese super bikes. No, they're normal, uh, normal motor motorbikes. What's your strike rate, Ali? How often are you, what percentage, how often are you hitting the 15 minutes? Look, sometimes we're even less than 15 minutes. Where I am right now, we deliver in eight minutes. Um, I'd say about, uh, we obviously want 99% uh, on time, which is on time for us is uh, within the promised ETA. So typically that will be within the uh, 15 minute range. Um, however, you know, in busy periods, sometimes we just, we have to say, hey, it's going to arrive in 20 minutes. For those unlucky customers, it will arrive in 20 minutes. I'd say approximately 90 to 90, uh, 95% of the time now, uh, we're arriving within within the promised ETA, exactly. And how do you keep it safe? I mean, we've had a bit of rain recently, more is forecast. Yeah, so obviously in rain, we tell, uh, it depends in different areas. Lots of areas are still safe to drive in the rain, some are not. Um, we tend to tell them to slow down and only operate when the rain has like pretty much stopped. Um, so there is potentially a compromised experience then. Um, but yeah, how do we keep it safe? I think obviously there's a big misconception about quick commerce generally, globally, there's been a bit of uh, uproar, but it's, it's a misconception because actually we're very close to the customer. We don't, um, we don't do fast delivery or last mile deliveries. What we do is fast, uh, we're fast because we're close to the customer, right? If we're just coming next door to you, um, it's very quick. Um, so that's how we keep it safe. There's no need for any driver to rush. We've got great relationships with our driver, whereby, drivers where, whereby, you know, uh, they're not penalized if, uh, if the orders are late, they're not incentivized if they deliver it early. Um, in fact, they don't actually know what exact time we've promised. They're just delivering it. Um, and yeah, so it is, a it is very safe. Um, and because they typically know the area very well and they know the best route to take, there's no surprises on the roads or, or something like that. Very quickly, Ali, I've got 30 seconds left with you. How big can this get? How many of these dark stores are you going to set up? It's uh, this is the we fundamentally fundamentally believe this is the future. So um, really, I think the sky's the limit in that respect. Uh, we think this will be larger than it's not just groceries, by the way. We deliver iPhones, AirPods, PS5s in 15 minutes, which kind of separates us from the rest of the world and what they've been doing with with quick commerce. So it's literally general general retail and everything you can imagine. Um, so there's no number we'll put on it. We're, uh, we see demand growing. We, it will continue to grow. Um, how many of the stores? Honestly, like long term, there's, not, there's no reason that we won't have one in every single street corner. So, yeah, whatever that number is. Ali Kathal Hussain, who leads Noon Minutes, speaking to us about their 15-minute promise. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.